Last week, Jess shared uh, an incredible message, and I have to encourage you, if you didn't hear it last week, you have to get on the thing called the podcast from your little electronic device and listen to the message last week, because she's, she shared about how God has so many promises for our lives. The scriptures are full of the promises that He has made for how our life will be and what it can be in Him, but there is a process to follow to get there and how we in our human nature hate to follow processes. We don't like the time that it takes. We do anything we can to try and shortcut it or circumvent it or do something in our own strength. But the reality is that God has a process that we need to follow in our life before we see the promise. A great example is from the Old Testament, the story of Abraham and Sarah. And the promise to Abraham was that he would have so many descendants that he could not even count them. But the problem was Abraham and Sarah, not only did they not have any children, they were also old. And I mean old, old, not just old, but like really old, like it was not going to happen. That's true, actually. You're right. They were. And uh, 99 years old, I think, from memory. So got a few years on you yet. You're all right, Murray. And, uh, and what were we talking about? We're talking about how they didn't have any children. So Abraham decided to circumvent the process that God had him going through by having a child with one of Sarah's maidservants and trying to fulfill the promise in his own strength. But the reality was the process is just as important as the promise. When Jess was preaching last week, whilst I was giving her 100% attention, I was thinking about the, the process of metamorphosis that a caterpillar goes through in becoming a butterfly. There's a process there that God created for it to happen. And there's a story about a man who was witnessing a butterfly struggling to emerge from a cocoon and he was so distraught at what appeared to be the distraught of the butterfly that he assisted by cutting open the cocoon. The problem was the butterfly was never able to use its wings and never was able to fly because the way that the process was designed was that in the struggle to emerge from the cocoon, That's what actually pushed the fluid through the butterfly's wings to give it the strength to to fly. That butterfly was never able to live up to the promise of being that beautiful creation, that that thing that could fly around and be so beautiful because it, it didn't get a chance to go through the process. So I really want to encourage you, find that message from last week and listen to it. And we're going to build upon it a little bit this week for the next 20 minutes to one hour, depending on Jack's feeding schedule this morning. But if you want a title for this week's message, we're going to call it, You Had One Job. Have you ever seen those, those images that get thrown around the internet? And, and it generally is depicting some epic fail of a really simple component of a job that you had that you just totally destroyed. You had one job to spell the word stop and that's what you ended up with. Have you, the lines. I love this one. 
You had one job to draw straight lines on a road and somehow you didn't even manage to get that right. You had one job. You can write that on the title of today's message. When I finished high school, I um, I elected to decide that technically I was still a student, so I was still going to have Christmas holidays. And towards the end of those holidays, I had the chat with the parents, go and do something with your life. So I started applying for jobs and I had an interview uh, for this role that I thought was incredible. It was called a sales executive role. Here I am fresh out of high school. My only experience was delivering pizzas and, uh, and eating lots of pizzas. And this job was for a sales executive role and I got an interview straight away and really quickly in the interview process, I could tell that this lady was going to give me the job. She started using language like when you work for us and when you start and everything she was saying was so incredible, the, the opportunity to earn this amazing income. I mean, I was 18 years old and just finished school, so 20 bucks a week was good. But an, an incredible income and incentives if I do more of this and this incredible opportunity that was in front of me. And I even got to the point of agreeing that I would be in there the next morning with a, with a, uh, with a button-up shirt on and a tie, ready to start my training, and the job of being a sales executive. Now, no matter how many times I asked her during the interview, she failed to answer the question of what will I actually be doing? And so even after I had agreed to be there, I pushed her one more time and said, look, I'm not going to come in tomorrow until you actually tell me what the job was. And thankfully, I saved myself from a career in door-to-door sales of vacuum machines. So I had agreed to do this job. She had sold me this incredible offer of work and I hadn't even realized before I accepted it of the job that I was signing up to do. Door-to-door sales, selling vacuum cleaners. This city would have been the cleanest city in the world, but I would have been very unfulfilled in my career as a vacuum cleaner salesman. But I wonder how many times in our life we have signed up for something and not realized the arrangement that we were making, perhaps. I mean, it's January, so this is an obvious one. A gym membership, where you sign up for a gym membership, not realizing that you have a 12-month contract, and even though you were really excited at the beginning, you had signed the contract, and you are now stuck with it. Maybe it was a phone plan, or some kind of finance arrangement, or an interest-free card, or something, where you, you sign up for it, you take the deal, but you don't really realize what the job was that you signed on the dotted line for. Well, the question I want to unpack and explore this morning is in being followers of Christ, being disciples of Him, being Christians, whatever label you like to put on yourself and on your Facebook page, whatever label you call yourself, did we really know the job that we were signing up for, the one job that we have to do in being followers of Christ. One of my favorite Bible verses is Ephesians 2 verse 10. And I know I read it all the time. I use it all the time, but that's because I think it is all time. It's one of the, the, the greatest passages in the Bible. And it says this, Ephesians 2 verse 10, for you are God's masterpiece. Now let's take a pause there and think about that. 
Now, when I wake up early in the morning and I've had a rough night and I haven't had any coffee, I certainly do not feel like God's masterpiece. But he has put it there, right in black and white, or whatever color you're looking at on your version app, that we are called God's masterpiece. Some translations will call it handiwork. The Bible is full of promises that show that even before our parents considered us, that God knew us and he planned us. Before anything ever happened that resulted in you being on this earth, God already promised that you are his masterpiece. Your parents may have said, oops. Your mum may have said to your dad, surprise. Hello, Carter. (laughs) But God did not think that when he planned you. He did not look at you and say, oh, I forgot about that one. His promise is that we are a masterpiece, that we are his handiwork, that we have been created. So regardless of how we feel, the situation we have grown up in, the scenarios that we have had to endure in our part of the process, so to speak, regardless of how we feel or the wounds that we carry or the scars that we have, we are still God's masterpiece. The incredible thing about being a follower of Christ is the first half of your book may be written, may be edited, may be published and unchangeable, but the greatest thing about being a follower of Christ is the end of your book is not yet even written. The story has not even yet been decided. It doesn't matter what the first half looks like. The fact that we can realize this morning that we are God's masterpiece can change how the book ends. The movie poster or trailer for your life story might use words like disaster, regret, mistake, unfortunate circumstance. It may even say things like average, predictable. But after the movie has been completed and shown, perhaps the critics will say this story is the greatest plot twist that the world has ever seen. What started as a disaster, a mess, a totally screwed up and destroyed life or even an ordinary life that seems so predictable suddenly becomes the greatest movie twist plot that has ever been seen when it ends in an incredible way because we realize that we are God's masterpiece. We're not a broken mistake that is gone God created us to be a masterpiece. He created us as his handiwork. The Bible verse goes on to say that he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. The good works. You see, God created us to be a masterpiece, but the Bible tells us here that he saved us for good works to do. Not saved us for comfortable life, but saved us for good works. We have one job to do. The good works that he planned for us long ago, before our lives even entered the category of messed up, broken, or incredibly ordinary, 
he planned good works. There is no thing that has happened in our life that changes the fact that not only are we God's masterpiece, but he created us anew, he saved us, so we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. You know those words, good works, in the Greek, they actually mean in the context of employment. That's the context that Paul was writing this in. The good works is the same work you would use if you were talking to someone about their job description or the work that they had to do in the environment of employment. One of the definitions of that Greek word points us towards employment, a job. God's masterpiece saved to do good works, to have one job that he has set aside for us to do. Have you you ever had one of those friends, and I'm, I'm sure you have, when you get that phone call and they're requesting your help and it begins with a reminder yeah, you have, (laughs) of what they did for you first. And it becomes the most predictable request. You've hey man, remember that time that I lent you my car? Well, I was wondering if, remember that time that uh, that, that I helped you move your house? You said it would be Saturday morning and we're still there Tuesday evening. Well, I was wondering if you could come and help. You know those friends who seem to put a bit of a condition on their request to activate you to do something by reminding you that they first did something for you. You can see everyone kind of nudging and looking around. Well, in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul's talking to the church in Corinth and he begins by saying to them, and and a little bit of this is from the message paraphrase of the Bible. He says, I urge you to, to never squander one bit of this marvelous life There it is. Don't squander one bit of this marvelous life that God has given us. Because God reminds us, I heard your call in the nick of time. The day you needed me, I was there to help. Look at the next word. Well. You see, God's saying to us, hey, remember when you needed me? Remember when, when you called out to me and I heard your call in the nick of time? The day you needed me, I was there to help. Well, now listen. Listen to what I have for you to do. And the next part of that passage goes on to talk about the process of serving God, the things that can happen in our life that make us tired and weary and can make us want to give up, but he encourages the church at Corinth and therefore us today to not squander one little bit. He heard our call just like our friends do to us. The call to say that salvation was never about acceptance. It was about activation into a job. We are God's masterpiece in his handiwork and he created us anew in Christ Jesus to do a job. Do you remember the induction for this job? It's in Matthew 28. In our modern Bible, we call it the Great Commission. It's when Jesus stood on the mountaintop with, with the disciples and he commissioned them. He gave them a, a job description, an induction into the workforce of being a disciple of him. He, he inducted the first disciples and we as followers of Christ thousands of years later, we just fall in line behind him as disciples today. And he says this, 
Jesus said, for I have been given all authority on heaven and earth. We know this scripture, Matthew 28, the Great Commission. And then it goes on to say, um, I haven't got it in my notes, but it's something like, uh, therefore go into all the world and choose from one of the following 357 options that fit comfortably into your life. Yours doesn't say that? Or maybe on the application form it said, hey, um, thank you for accepting the gift of salvation that I have given you. Um, Please enter your preferences on what ministry department or mission you feel you might be able to give a little bit of a time to in serving God in thanks for salvation. It's right above the box where you fill out your availabilities on the application form. The Great Commission, the job description of being a disciple of Christ is not about how Christianity fits into our life. It's how we accept that when we needed God, He saved us and therefore we die to our life and live again in Christ. It's not about availabilities on a form. It's not about a drop-down box that suits our life. It's about the one job that God has, which is the great commission, which is to live out the calling, the good works, the job that God has for us. Now, calling is a great mystery in the church world. We talk about it in, in, in church all the time. I, I, I'm called to this. I don't know if I feel called to that. That's a good one. I feel called to something else. Well, I don't, I don't believe that there is any great mystery to the calling of God because it spells it out really clearly in the Great Commission. We're called to simply do what Christ has told us to do. Not to see where it fits into our life, but to give our entire life back to God. The calling of God in Adam's formula is really simple. The call of God is to take action. We have to believe that we have been given not only the fact that we are a masterpiece, but good works to do, that our life is intended to produce a harvest for the fact that not only were we saved, but that we existed on this earth. There has to be something, if we're promised good works, the process we walk through has to result in our life producing a harvest not just disappearing into nothing. If you want to think about it really bluntly, our job description could even be said that our calling in life is not to figuratively walk through the gates of heaven, strolling down a lonely road by ourselves, but to dance our way in with an entourage of people, a harvest of people, that are there because we fulfilled the good works that God had for us in our life. The calling of God is simply to take action and to fight for the harvest that God has promised is a part of your life. You've been saved. 
You've been created anew in Christ Jesus. You have good works to do. You have a job description, a harvest that your life is intended to not only stroll into heaven with an entourage, but to leave this world a better place because you were a part of it. It's as simple as waking up every morning and understanding that God has already positioned us for a purpose to do something that we just need to be intentional in our actions every day, that we're already capable of doing all that he has asked us and given us to do, that we stay committed to that and never stop growing in our knowledge of who he is and becoming more like him every day. That's the calling of God in our life. And what I love about it, and this is another thing that we kind of mess up in modern world, is the great thing about this job is everyone gets paid the same. You can be a missionary that flies around the world and opens 10,000 orphanages in the part of the world that needs them the most. And when you one day walk up to the gates of heaven and the iPad comes up with your list of uh, previous work experiences or tasks you have completed... KPIs achieved. Your remuneration is this. Well done, good and faithful servant. There's the door. Enter. You could be the person who looks after your elderly neighbor, cooks them a couple of meals a week, collects the mail, leads them to Christ and reads the Bible to them because they can't get to church. So you take church to them and you rock up to the gates and you know what you get? Well done, good and faithful servant. There's the gate. In you go. The remuneration for our work reward is all the same. Because it's not about what we do or what it looks like or how amazing it is to us as we judge each other. It's all about whether we listened to God and took action and fought for the harvest and battled for the harvest, and took steps towards the harvest every single day that was intended and is sitting there ready for us to take in our life. God's created us to be a masterpiece, which means we can do all that he has asked of us. We don't need anything more than to trust him and to chase him. And the Old Testament is full of stories of when the enemy would come and try and destroy the crops or the harvest of the Israelites. You think about in Judges, in the time of Gideon, it says that whenever the Israelites would plant their crops, the enemy would come and destroy the crops so there could not be a harvest. It was a very common technique in in ancient warfare It was so much easier than battling hand-to-hand combat or forming armies and sending them in. But to go in and destroy the crops or kill the livestock meant that the people would slowly perish, that they would become weary and tired and could not even fight. And so, so often, battles were fought over the harvest to protect the harvest, just like in our life. There is a harvest field that you have been positioned and planted within as a masterpiece of God with an activated job to go and do in that spot. But there's a harvest field there 
that the enemy will try and destroy if we do not fight for it and take action every single day. Last week, Jess shared from the life of David, and I want to have a quick look, a real quick look, at another story from the time when he was king. And, and, and there's these great little chapters in the Bible that talk about David and his mighty men. He had these heroes, these incredible warriors that would fight with him. They were the captains and the generals and the leaders of the army. They were the heroes of the day. They had incredible stories and accounts of the things that they had, had done, the enemies that they had fought and defeated. And, and in First Chronicles chapter 11, we're reading about David's mightiest men. And in verse 12, it says, Next in rank among the three was Eleazar, son of Dodai, a descendant of Ahoah. He was with David in the battle against Philistines at Pazdamim. The battle took place in a field full of barley, and the Israelite army fled. But Eleazar and David held their ground in the middle of the field and beat back the Philistines. So the Lord saved them by giving them a great victory. The same story is told in 2 Samuel chapter 23, and it actually says that Eliezer's hand became so tired during the battle from slaying so many of the enemy that his hand was frozen to the sword, that it cleaved to the sword. He could not even let it go during the battle for the harvest. As we finish, I might get the band to come. But there's something interesting about this, this mighty warrior, Eliezer, fighting in a field of barley. Now this guy either really loved his veggie burgers and his bread, or he knew that there was something important about fighting for the harvest of his people. He either loved to have a little bit of barley to throw in his soup to thicken it up at the end of cooking, or he knew that a harvest was something that had to be protected because of how much work has gone into it and how much reward is gained. Talk to a farmer about a harvest. It's not just the time at the end of the season when they get to drive their tractor over the field and collect the grain. It's the preparation of the soil. It even goes back to years before of preparing the grain that can be reseeded. There is a harvest that Eliezer understands that if he does not stand his ground in the middle of the battle, regardless of how tired or exhausted he feels, that there is so much to lose if that harvest is never seen by the people of his nation. The same challenge that we all face at the beginning of this year. What harvest do we need to stand in the middle of the field for and defend and fight for and take action every single day? What field have we been positioned and placed in in this year to do the one job that God has for us? Eliezer, his name, 
means God has helped. Not God will help. Not God is going to help. God has helped. That's what his name means in Hebrew. Kind of sounds like that verse in Ephesians 2 verse 10 where God has helped. God has saved. God has made us anew. 2 Corinthians 6, when you needed me, I came. I heard your call in the nick of time. God has helped. His father's name was Dodai, which means beloved. So he is the one that God has helped, that God has saved. And he's the beloved son, the masterpiece, the handiwork. And he stands in a field knowing that if God has helped him, he's got to pick up his side of the deal, the job description, and defend and fight for the harvest of the people that he loves. But he's descended from Ahoa. His generational line. Ahoa means to take rest. So here we have Eliezer in the midst of battle. An analogy of where we sit, positioned in our harvest field, ready to fight for the harvest of God, the good works that he has for us, the people that he has placed around us, the need to know the same freedom in Christ that we have in their life. Here he is, the man who God has helped, who is the masterpiece, the handiwork, the beloved son. And he stands in the middle of a field of barley, And he makes the same decision that I would love to encourage slash challenge us to make as a church of individuals this morning. Do I do what I have always done? Do I take the name of my descendant, the first half of my book, the journey that I have walked, that which everyone expects of me being a descendant of Ahoah and simply take rest, perhaps even flee with the rest of the Israelites and catch up with them? Or do I realize that I am not determined by where I have come from? The first half of my book may be written, but I'm God's masterpiece. He has saved me for a work. And no matter how tired I feel, No matter how weary I am, my hand will cleave, will be frozen to the sword that says each and every day I will fight for my harvest. The thing that gets us to that place, 2 Corinthians 5. Sorry, Caleb, I don't have this one for you. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14. Either way, Christ's love controls us, compels us in some translations. The word there means like under siege or as a prisoner would be. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone, so those who receive his new life. Let's pause there for a second. Created anew in Christ Jesus, not for our new life. First half of our book is written, 
It does not get wiped. We just get a new life in Him. He died for everyone so those who receive His new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. This year can our challenge be for this week and for beyond that we would realise that we are God's masterpiece positioned in a harvest field that is our good works. No one else is going to come and save that harvest field. God's already given you that job and said, you got one job. Take action, fight for, protect the harvest that your life was designed to create. Can you imagine what this city would be like if a couple of hundred people walked out of here with their hand cleaving and frozen to the sword and said, doesn't matter where I come from, I'm beloved, I'm a masterpiece and I've got a job to do and I'm going to defend this field of barley that you have placed within me. Lord, we thank you that we thank you that you did love us and you cared us enough, cared for us enough to save us. You heard our cry. You came just in the nick of time. So many of us can testify that. Lord, we also thank you that our salvation does not come with condition, but it comes with opportunity. Opportunity to take hold of a job, to fight for a harvest and to see our life be good works that you have set aside for us. Lord, would you touch all our hearts right now? Would you show us that you have given us the strength that we need, that you have made us capable to do all that you have asked us to do? Would you help help our steps to be intentional each and every day for us to stay committed and to never stop growing closer to you, to know you more, and to be a greater disciple of Jesus Christ everywhere we go. We thank you, Lord. Amen.